1: She said,
0: you want to roller skate? And I said, no, no, I don't want to roller skate. She said, you want to act? And I said, no. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. I just one day want to be involved in something like that. And so I guess I meant I wanted to produce, you know? There you have it. It's as good a description of what we do as
1: any, right?
0: I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway.
1: You're listening to the Producer's Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. It's like...
2: Hey everybody, it's Kent Davenport and that was a song from Jagged Little Pill. You've probably heard it before because it's like a number one hit, especially if you grew up in the 90s. Today we're going to talk to the lead producer of Jagged Little Pill, Vivek Tiwari. Wait to hear the story of how he got these rights from Alanis Morissette. It is one that you are going to learn from and love. So let's get to it. Here is Vivek. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I'm super excited to talk to today's guest. You missed actually the offline conversation (laughs) we were having about food right before this, but we'll save that for another podcast. But if that's any indication, today is going to be a fantastic discussion. He is the lead producer of Jagged Little Pill. Please welcome to the podcast, Vivek Tiwari. Welcome, Vivek. Thank you so much for having me. So Vivek has something that most Broadway producers don't have. You're one of the rare and the few that (laughs) actually have an MBA and have studied... Studied business. We're going to talk about that. In addition to Jagged, he's been a producer on American Idiot, Raisin in the Sun, and The Adams Family. And get this—he's the author of a New York Times best-selling graphic novel called *The Fifth Beetle*. Correct?
0: I am indeed. Yeah. So I, brought, ed- I brought a copy for you. actually. Oh my god! So, will you yeah. sign it for me? Oh, uh, sure. Fantastic. If you'd like. That's very uh, kind of you. He's
2: got an MBA, and he is a best-selling <laughs> New York Times author. Those are two things that most uh, Broadway producers do not have. So you have this very interesting path
0: to becoming a producer. So. Where did it? Where did the love of theater start? The most basic answer to that question from my my upbringing and my geography, from my parents and New York City. I was born here in the city. My parents didn't work in the arts; they were immigrants. The family is originally from India, but they loved the arts. My dad was a doctor. My mom was an attorney. So, literally, no professional connection to the arts but they loved they loved all forms of art and ever since i was a little kid we grew up on 12th street they were taking me uptown to see broadway shows and ballet and and the opera and i you know i grew up loving the fine performing arts if you will and then as soon as i was allowed out of the house on my own in my teenage years i was going downtown to places like cbgb's and la mama and seeing you know experimental theater as it was called back then and you know early punk rock shows and early sonic youth shows And, um, you know, so I grew up with a very, very well-rounded love of all forms of the arts, but certainly a very sweet spot for Broadway. My mom was a gigantic Broadway fan, and I saw all the shows growing up. And, you know, a quick story, I I distinctly remember, you know, walking out of Starlight Express, it was Starlight Express, uh, and telling my mom, you know, one day I want to do that. And she said, you want a roller skate? Yeah, you know, for those of you who don't know Starlight Express, it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that in large part takes place on roller skates. Um, and I said, no, no, I don't want to roller skate. She said, you, you want to act? And I said, no. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. I just one day want to be involved in something like that. And so I guess I meant I wanted to produce, you know, there you have it. It's as good a description of what we do as any, right? Um, Starlight Express. And, just... But it was Starlight Express. I have to give uh, Sir Andrew his credits, you know, and, and it was Cats before that, that uh, if I'm honest, was the gateway drug. You know, I remember seeing Cats and seeing, you know, back then, that was immersive theater, you know, seeing those cats crawling out of the walls and up the alley. And I mean, there was nothing like that that I had seen back then. It was an early form of immersive theater, I think. And I remember walking out of that show and having my mind blown. Yeah, but, uh, Andrew has this thing about actually Starlight Express and
2: Cats are both perfect examples. Like everything he does has some very unique quality to it, which I right. think is not only a good thing for theater, but just business in general. So being the son of an Indian doctor myself, <laughs> an Indian immigrant doctor... How did that conversation go when you said, I want to get involved in the theater? Obviously, you didn't start that right away, but were they like, no, no,
0: you're going yeah, right I mean, to med school? You know, to give my parents their due credit, they were pretty supportive. Being honest, they were a lot better than many other Indian parents. I have a lot of, uh, you know, family members and and Indian friends and colleagues whose parents were not so understanding with passions that they may have had. So, some who did not literally, did not, quote unquote, allow them to pursue those passions. And um, my family, my parents, um, unfortunately they passed away. My dad passed away while I was in college and my mom passed away about um, after I graduated from Wharton. I took a job working at Mercury Records and my, my mom passed away about a year into that job. Um, so they didn't actually get to see me doing oh, the things I'm that sorry. I'm doing now. However, as I'm sure we'll talk about my career path, my my path started in the music industry. As I just mentioned, I was working for record labels. And, um, you know, that's where my dream was to really work broadly in the arts, music, graphic novels, comics, theater, do a little bit of everything. And I'm proud to say I I am living that dream. Um, But but I wanted to start with music. Music in many ways was my first love. Um, Even, you know, going back to those Broadway shows that my mom took me to, the ones that really spoke to me were the musicals. And so, you know, while I was in college and business school, I was certainly telling them that you know that I wanted to pursue a career in the music industry. That that's where I wanted to start. Starting my own company was always my end goal, but I, I viewed working for a record label as an extension of my education. And they knew that that was a path that I was on. You know, while I was at Wharton, I got a job working for Sony Music as a field marketing rep. Um, so I worked out of my my dorm room, um, you know, but I was I was working for Sony Distribution. So they they saw me make that start, and then my mom certainly saw me take a job at Mercury Records. And like uh, like all good parents, they they were nervous about that career choice, and and they were right to be. You know, those are music and the arts, as as you know, are difficult fields. They're ones you have to remain passionate about, and and yes, you can make uh, money and have a stable life, but it it takes a lot of persistence to get there. And and there are certainly more stable and lucrative paths, especially for someone with a business degree. So I would say that they gave me a very, very healthy amount of skepticism, and they forced me to ask the right questions and, and um, to make sure that this was something I was passionate about and willing to be persistent on. So I wouldn't say that they just said, go for it. You know, they would have, I think, preferred that I didn't. Um, but God bless them. They, they made me, you know, confront the, the hard parts of that decision. And then once I, they saw that I was real about it, they didn't stop me and they were as supportive as they could be. And I made a joke about it in the
2: introduction in terms of the MBA, but was that, was there ever a decision, will I or won't I? I mean, a lot of people in this business side of the arts don't have that kind of
0: education. Yeah.
2: Um, Were you like, oh, I want this or?
0: Yeah. So, so um, I should make a, give a little a point of fact. Correction: It's not actually an MBA. I did the dual degree program at Wharton as an undergrad. They don't actually have this program anymore. But back then, um, I literally applied into both schools. Now they have a program. Um, I don't know what it. What, MNT is Management and Technology, which is you attend Wharton and the Engineering School, and there is a dual degree program that allows you to pursue um, liberal arts and Wharton. But when I was there, I literally had to apply to both the College of Arts and Sciences and the Wharton School of Business. So as an undergrad, I was on a five-year plan. Uh, attending both schools, going through summers, and uh, and for five years, as I said. It's
2: harder um, than an MBA, just for the record.
0: Just so I was wrong, but it's actually uh, you know, harder. Look, I, I, don't, I certainly don't want to say that it's harder than an MBA. I, I have a lot of respect for people who go through that process. However, for, for what it's worth, Wharton actually does not like to take their people who do that undergraduate program into their MBA program because they say there is so much overlap. So they actually don't, they, they suggest that if you go through that and you want to pursue an MBA, really for the letters, you know, to have them on your CV, um, they actually recommend you go to another business school to get a different perspective, because you really do learn the MBA program there. Um, and knowing that I wanted to go into the entertainment industries, I didn't feel that the the letters were necessary, so I didn't go on to do the MBA program. Um but uh, but your question is still valid. It was still a very challenging path. And, uh, and actually, when I started, I started just at Wharton. You know, as I graduated high school, like many high school kids, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my future. Um, I knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, which were the traditional paths that were expected of me as a young Indian kid um, with a father who was a doctor. And, uh, you know, my, my, if I wasn't going to do either of those things, then I was expected to join my family business. And my family business does a variety of different things, very well diversified, started by my grandfather. We can talk about that separately. It is quite fascinating. The core competencies are um, agriculture, food products, and finance, but they also have automotive. They do a, a really ton of really interesting things, but nothing in entertainment. So nothing that I was passionate about. Nevertheless, That was the path that I started to follow. You know, I knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, so I guess I'm going to join the family business. So I guess I should get a business background. And I remember, you know, at Wharton being um, really torn. You know, I I felt that on one hand, I was um, worried about you know, finding a path to pursue my passions and do something in the arts and letting my family down. Uh, And then on another hand, um, I was torn about not wanting to, you know, because I loved my family, like, do, you know, not let them down, but then sell my passions out. Uh, So I didn't really know what to do. So I tried to do them both, you know, and and be in business school. And then I applied into the College of Arts and Sciences because I also cared about liberal arts. And I found myself a a job working in the music industry. And I thought I was going to do both and, and see where it took me. And um, I loved working in the music industry and was, uh, I guess, promising in that space. And, and, uh, and my parents saw at that point that I was serious, that this wasn't a passing fad. You know, I, was, I played drums and percussion in a, in a band in high school, and I think they wanted to make sure I wasn't, this wasn't going to be like that, just another thing that I was into for a couple of years. But as soon as they saw that I was serious about it, they actually in- encouraged me to keep chasing that passion. So that's kind of the path of it, you know?
2: And what is something you learned from business school and that education that you find yourself applying to today to producing a show that some of us who haven't had that education, like this guy talking right now, may
0: not have? So what, what's something that you use every day from? Oh, that? Oh, man. I mean, world? you know, I literally running my own company, I, I use my business background every single day, you know, everything. That I do is informed by by the business education that I had. You know, one, one thing you learn in business school is the, you know, they say, discuss it while you're in love, you know, that negotiate all the, the tough things when everybody is at the beginning of a process and everyone's passionate about the, the art and the project, um, as opposed to when things are moving and people might have shifted and feel more entitled in certain ways and before jealousies kick in. And I think that's a really good piece of advice, you know, get it on paper, but negotiate it at the very beginning when everybody's in love. You know, certainly passion and persistence. I learned from in business school. You know, if you're if you in entrepreneurial management class, they you know they say that I was at business school in the early '90s. I graduated in '96, so this was before the internet boom and before you saw people who uh, you know would work on something and um, have a relative overnight success, a great idea that took off and had a gigantic IPO. You hear a lot, you heard a lot of those stories after I graduated, but in my sort of era, it was the like you know you got to work five to ten years building your company before you should expect to have any real sense of profit. Um, which is, and a lot of business people aren't into that. So they then said, you take a job working for a firm, you know, or go into finance, go into investment banking, go into actuarial science, a number of other fields. But if you want to do entrepreneurial management, it, I learned at school that that's going to take you a good five to ten years before you're going to see any profits, and be prepared to to rough it for those first five to ten years. And that's as good of advice as any into building a show for Broadway or building a musical. Certainly, you know, a, a new any sort of new musical, non revival. You're going to take at least five years to get it off the ground. Um, so to to know that you mu- you're going to be working for five plus years and not really seeing any money from it, in fact losing money, and to be able to in your head know that that is not only okay but that's normal and and not beat yourself up about that, um, you know, that's something I learned in business school. And when you started looking at the financial
2: reporting that Broadway does or the forecasting mm-hmm. or the modeling or the budgets did it drive you crazy coming no. from business school uh, you know it's so
0: funny i actually it's one of the things i actually love about broadway is that is is it, it's um it's straightforward in the sense that like you know your show is performing in a theater the theater has x number of seats your deal with the theater is this deal, and you can kind of figure out what that all means. And of course, you know, as producers, it's part of our job to to play with that, to have premium seating and to have sponsorships and to you know offer some tickets, uh, you know, at uh, group discounts and TDF, and that, there's a million different things you can do to change those numbers and, and change how those spreadsheet looks. How that spreadsheet looks, but the basic accounting is pretty straightforward. You know, you, what you can't do is change the number of seats more or less. I mean, as you know, there's certain, there's certain wiggle room and add a few seats or take a few seats here for sight lines and whatnot. But for the most part, the theater has a certain capacity, you know, unlike a film where you can go wide if the film is doing well or narrow it down if the film's not doing so well. Um, you know, in the record business, if you're selling CDs, you can, you have distribution, you're trying to get it into more and more stores, you try to launch it internationally, you know, on Broadway, it's, it's you have, um, yes, eventually you'll have a tour and you'll have international productions. But the accounting is, for me, was refreshing. It was very easy to wrap your head around this. You knew more or less when you were going to break even if you sold more or less this percentage of the house. You know, that you can't really argue with. And I loved that. I thought there was a certain degree of certainty to that that you could plan around.
2: That's a very good point because I look at business models for other industries and these projections are mm. always like, oh, our app is going to sell 8 million. And it's that's like, exactly what are you right. basing this on? That's oh, exactly it's right. based on this algorithm, which we know is mostly BS. So that's a fascinating approach. So you you co-produced before you became a lead producer. Yeah. What was the thing that made you go, okay, I'm ready to be the CEO of a big musical and I'm ready to graduate?
0: (sighs) That's a really good question. I think mostly... You know, as, as with everything, I lead from a place of passion, and it was more just I had a passionate idea that was mine, you know, that I had an ability to get off the ground. I mean, actually, to give full credit where it's due, one of my producing partners on Jagged Little Pill, Arvin David, um, he he said to me over a tea that we were having, he said, you know, I always thought Jagged Little Pill would make a great musical. So to, be, to give credit, it was really his spark of an idea. But I went home that night, listened to the record and, and agreed with him. And Arvind at the time was mostly doing television. I, I joke like in the, the Godfather, we sucked him back into theater. You know, he had done theater in the UK and had moved actually to LA to really focus on TV. And, uh, you know, I called him back and I said, you know, I listened to that record. I hadn't listened to it from beginning to end. Um, since it had, you know, since I was listening to it when it came out. Of course I had heard the hits on the radio. Um, but I hadn't hadn't listened to it as a complete piece of work and God only knows how a decade plus, you know? And um and I I it was certainly the first time I had listened to it with musical theater ears, if you will. And I remembered being struck by how musical theater the songs felt. You know, that album, the songs are epic in their, their vibe, in their, set, their feel, the way a U2 song is epic. You know, they're very big. But unlike U2, who I love, so this is not a critique, but like the U2 songs are also epic in their message you know, where the streets have no name and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Whereas the Alana songs, their message is very small. It's like, here's what happened to me one summer. Here's what happened in a relationship I was involved in. Here's what happened one day when I broke into your house. You know, it's like very tiny, very personal messages. And to me, that's almost the definition of a great musical theater song. It's a song that plays to the back of the audience, but makes you feel like you're right inside one person's head. Um, and I also saw, not a story, it's not a rock opera the way American Idiot is a rock opera with a, a sort of built-in story, um, but I found thematic uh, narrative in in the album. And I thought, this is ready, this is there. And I was very proud of my work on American Idiot. And that show is very um, loud in terms of its message. I don't mean just the music. And it's very male. You know, certainly there are wonderful female characters in it, but it's a very male point of view and in, 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 as it's written by Green Day. And I knew that the next thing I wanted to do, I wanted to, to lean into my music background. All my projects lean into my music background. It's my my num- my first love, as I said. But I wanted to do something that was a little bit more female-focused and a little bit quieter in terms of its message. You know, The music in Jagged is still very rock, um, but the message is, a, it's no disrespect on American Native, but a little more nuanced, a little quieter, I think, um, a little less aggressive than the messages of that show. And so this just felt like something I wanted to do. And at this point, I had... I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back too much, but a pretty good reputation and pretty good network within the music industry. And while I didn't know Alanis's then manager directly, we were one degree of separation. So I met with her then manager. We hit it off, and she said, Alanis is going to love you. You should meet with her next time you go out to LA. And, you know, I'll stop there. But, like, you know, so that, so the, the ball had started rolling of my own volition, you know. So it, I kind of, to some degree, fell into it in the sense that, like, it was the next idea I discovered that I was passionate about, and I was the one that had set it in motion. So obviously, I was going to be the lead producer on it. That being said, I also there was a part of me that had felt that it was time to to drive the bus. Um, you know, I had wonderful experiences being a, a co producer on other shows, and I joined those shows because I was passionate about them. But the idea didn't come for me and the the process had already been in motion. And I sort of felt like it's time for me to set an idea in motion and it's time for me to drive the bus. So even if I hadn't come across the path that led me to sitting down to have lunch with Alanis, I think I would have looked for it. You know, I think uh, I was out there feeling like I don't want to be another co-producer this time around.
2: And if you could look back at that moment, because the getting the rights to this music is something that I'm sure a lot of people thought about and dismissed, because I'll never get those rights. I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And here you come along, and yes, you've got some connections in the music industry, and you've co-produced a few shows, but you've never led one. Certainly, there are Broadway producers with a lot more credits, right? Is there anything that you remember say like doing or saying that made her go like, "Oh, this is the guy I'm going to entrust the biggest thing I've yeah. ever done in my life and her art to you.
0: Why you? Well, look, I mean, we had a we had a really great meeting that first meeting. and um, and I will say that why me? You know, I mean, you'd probably you'd have to ask her, but but I will tell you that i I think I'm very unique, uh, again, not wanting to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but very unique in the in the world of Broadway producing and that I really, I come out of the music industry. Not just like I like these bands and I grew up with these albums, but I worked in the music industry for a number of years. Um, I worked for a small record label called Seed Records. I then worked for Atlantic Records. I then worked for Sony Music Distribution, as I mentioned earlier. I then worked for Mercury Records. Like That's the industry that I really grew up in, was the music industry. And I speak that language and I understand that business. And that business is as bizarre and unique as our Broadway business. It's very, very different. It operates on different timeframes. It operates with different financial models, different financial expectations for projects. Everything about it is different. And I understand it, and I speak that language, and I'm also wicked passionate about music. So I understand artists, and I understand legacy. I understand um, what it means to to protect a piece of IP. You know, a lot of um, Broadway producers I noticed when going after IP have kind of the attitude that you should secure the IP and endear yourself to the owner or the creator of the IP, and then keep them as far away as possible because they can only be trouble, assuming they're not theater people themselves. You know, it's like it comes from a film or whatever. And I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, when I sit down with somebody, I'm like, I want you involved in this IP. I remember telling her if, you know, this record is, you know, really old and you were a kid when you made it, if you feel like you don't want to revisit it, that would be perfectly understandable. But I don't want to do it if you don't want to do it. Like half of this for me is being able to work with you, partially because I think she's a genius and partially because, you know, that's half the fun for me, right? I love what I do. I want to work with some of my heroes. And I think that's very unusual, you know, that sort of collaborative nature and the ability to to speak both languages, to sit down with her and for her to feel that I understand her both artistically as well as the business that she operates in. and i I, I have felt that with a number of other musicians that I've sat down with. I, I just know that that's a different meeting than the type of meeting they would take with any Broadway producer, even one that has had, you know, technically far more experience producing more shows than I have because they've not worked in the music industry. Um, very specific to Alanis, uh, and she has said this very publicly that I was not the first producer to sit down with her and suggest that they do something with Jagged Little Pill, but I was the first producer to sit down with her and say, right off the bat, it was one of the first things I said, like, I don't want to tell your life story with it. Like I don't want to use Jagged Little Pill to do a bio piece. I don't want it to be a thinly veiled biography. There will be no character in our ensemble who is a female singer-songwriter who's kind of like Alanis. Like, I wasn't interested in that at all. And I'll never say never. Maybe I'll do one of those projects, but it's but they don't interest me. You know, that's not what I do. Um, another thing that I think is, is really... Um, Special about what I do cannot really don't want to sound like I'm being arrogant about this, but this is a, uh, kind of what I do is that I come up with, you know, daring combinations, you know, it, literally in that first meeting, I also said to her that I want to tell a story that is not a 90s period piece you know, telling a 90s period piece that is about you could be a really cool jacket musical that I would go to, but that's not what I'm interested in doing. It's not what I do. I want to tell a piece that's set in the present day, that deals with issues of the present day, you know, important issues in the zeitgeist um, that forces the audience to confront uncomfortable truths to the world around them. And has the audience realize that by leaning on their community and leaning on your loved ones, you can get yourself to a place of empowerment and hope, and you can come out the other end, um, you live, you learn, you know, coming out the other end wiser and stronger by leaning on the people you love. Like that's, that's to me the legacy of the album You know, that's what the album did for me, and that's what I think it did for people who love that record. It helped them through difficult times and made them realize that you were not alone, and that by leaning on the people who understood you, you could empower yourself and find hope and eventually find healing. That's what the album did. So I was like, that's the story I want to tell.
2: In the first meeting, you told her, this is the approach I want. I I
0: didn't know the narrative, but I knew that theme. I knew that basic story. I don't know what world we set that story in, but I said that. And then I also said, um, and I know that doesn't necessarily sound like a fun night at the theater, so it also needs to be funny, right? And we may need to look outside the box of traditional theater writers for that. For example, someone like Diablo Cody. You know, and and that's what Diablo Cody does, right? She tells stories that are um, that are very serious in their issues, but are funny. She's a, a comedian, at, you know. She writes comedies, but Juno is about teen pregnancy and it's funny. You know, United States of Tara is about mental illness, but it's funny. You know, this is what Diablo does. And yeah, that was my pitch to her. It's a risky, and she thing. loved it. And and it is risky. Yeah, because they you know, may say no. the easy you thing to, to, to do would be to convince her she's lived an inspiring life, and let's let's do your bio. And she has lived an inspiring life, but that's not what I do, and that's not what I'm interested. In. And 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 now you when you put it out into the world, you know Diablo Cody collaborating with Alanis Morissette and Diane Paulus and Tom Kitt and City Larby, like that makes a lot of sense. But. No one was coming to those people suggesting that Diablo Cody told me I was the first person that ever approached her about a stage musical. You know, and to me, she's she is a very collaborative. She comes a, from a television writers' room mentality. It's collaborative by nature. She's very funny. Very you know, her dialogue is often very witty one-liners, which you need in theater. You know, you need a one line to draw somebody into the story, and you need to be nuanced. You need to be both funny and serious. I mean, she's a perfect theatrical writer. I thought. And I think artists also like that I do that. That I'm that a music musical artists know that if they're sitting down with me, they're immediately getting passion because I don't sit down with anybody unless I'm passionate about it. So they get that right away. They get somebody who understands the business, who will protect the legacy of their their album, their catalog. You know, what something that's very meaningful for them as a piece of art because I'm a music geek. And uh, and thirdly, I'm going to come up with something creative. I'm not just going to sit down and say, "Let's tell your life story. You've lived an inspiring life." You know, I'm gonna have some out of the box, crazy idea, and they're artists. You know, they want an out of the box, interesting idea.
2: I wish I had um, IP so. myself to give you. I mean, this is uh, it's uh, a fascinating. Thank you. Pro- it's it's true, and you're now a lead producer on Broadway, and it's a big hit. And congratulations, because thank you. all the development has proven, and all that passion has uh, certainly uh, it's paid its way. It's it's doing very, very well critically as well as financially at the box office. What's the one thing about lead producing a big Broadway musical that has surprised you the most? That you were like. Huh,
0: I didn't, I didn't. expect that when I got here. Um, you know, I, uh, I'll have to. I'll think about that a little bit longer. But I'm. I'm really not be- being disingenuous by saying there hasn't really been any of those kind of surprises. I mean, there's obviously surprises along the way in terms of the work. The work never. You know, there's always surprise. I mean, it's live theater. It's drama by 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 definition. Um, but I don't think there have been any surprises. You know, and and um, you know, you pointed out really wisely that I've been co producer. On a number of shows and and co-producer meaning like the second or third listed producer, which might have mean I'm not the lead. I'm not the number one. I'm not the guy or gal that like set it all in motion. But I was there from the very beginning, Um, you know, and and I did see every aspect of the process. And I really learned from that process. You know, Steve Baruch, who produces regularly on Broadway, um, you know, he let me into the producers. It was the first show I was involved in. I don't think he really uh, appreciates this, but he really was my first mentor in the industry. Shame that didn't work uh, out too well there. It's a real shame. <laughs> That's You know, and it was a great – and I, I remember telling him, like, you know, I'll put a little bit of my own money in and I'll raise some money, so I'll, I'll earn my place. But, you know, I, I really want to learn. I want you will you let me trail you? Will you let me take you out to breakfast once a week and fill me in on on what happened in that meeting that I know I was too junior to be allowed to come to? But I knew it was happening, and I want to know. I want to learn. So as a result of all that learning, um, I think by the time I got to to lead producing, it there were no surprises in the role of lead producing, but certainly a lot of surprises along the way, as there always are, you know.
2: So you mentioned raising money there. So what's your strategy when you raise money as a co-producer, as a lead producer? Where do you start? What's your pitch? Any tips?
0: Yeah, you know, for me, when I started, um, you know, so I I started raising money as a producer, obviously, from way back with the producers, right? Um, And so, you know, 20 years, 20 plus years ago, and I had come out of business school. And so I, I, at least at the time, it seemed to me that I was very unusual in my pitch as as a producer, Uh, In that I approached people, both from a business perspective and from a passion perspective. I mean, I remember at the time, hearing a producer pitch someone and saying, you know, this show is it's promising for all these reasons. And so you're very likely to make your money back. And as a Wharton grad, I was like, very likely to make your money back. Like, that is not a ringing endorsement for an investment opportunity. Right. I was like, <laughs> in fact, I thought Wharton. it was kind of absurd, actually. <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, and literally in my pool of investors, I don't have a single investor that doesn't want to make a good return like make a pile of money really you know um that being said i also don't have a single investor that isn't passionate also about broadway and about the work and enjoys coming to the parties and the opening nights and the hopefully the tony party and you know the, the Yes, there's all of that too, but I know there are, at least when I started, you know, 20, 21 years ago, there, there were a lot of those types, you know, people who were just wealthy individuals who um, believed in a piece and didn't really do the due diligence on the numbers and the business, and they were okay with that because they just supported the arts, and God bless those people. Um, but, you know, those weren't my investors. My investors were a bit of that, but also like real business people who, who understood how to read those projections and, and wanted to know that, that I had a plan to make their money back. Um, I also always put my own money into my shows, which is not something that other producers always do, um, but I always do. And that's another thing I learned from business school. You know, you 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 should show them that you have your own skin in the game. And uh, and my my investors often ask that, like, how much money do you have in the show? And I will be honest, like in, increasingly that that amount is very little. Um, and in fact, to be totally forthcoming on Jagged, I don't have any of my own money in the show, but but I did. And the only reason that I I don't anymore is because we were so oversubscribed. There were so many people who wanted in um, that I I took the piece that I had invested and gave it to somebody who really wanted in um, because, I had I, this because I wanted to do right by them. Um, the
2: same experience on Kinky Boots. I was a co-producer yeah. on it, but so many of my investors that's wanted right. in. And I think that's something that all lead producers should do is say, or I'll co producers should do like give if your investors
0: want it, give it to them for God's exactly, sakes. Exactly, exactly right. You're going to be just fine. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that's I guess that's kind of how I approach it. I, I I try to show both. I try to show that like I have a clear path to how this will be a commercial success because I'm a commercial producer. I love nonprofit theater, but I don't work in it. I'm a commercial producer, and um, I show them why I think artistically this piece is going to going to be great and entertaining because ultimately I think that's my job. My job is twofold equally important to create something that's entertaining and create something that's going to make money. As a commercial producer, I have to do both. You've got a very exciting
2: few months ahead of you as we start the big race into the Tony Awards. Uh, how does that look to you? What's, are you starting to develop strategies? How early do you start thinking about that in terms of the overall marketing strategy for the show?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, um, on one hand, you have to really focus on the art and not worry too much about awards. You'll hear a lot of people say that, you know, it's not about the awards. And and it's not. Um, on the other hand, like, when do you start thinking about that? You start thinking about it from the minute you decide you're going to Broadway. Um, you know, I mean, on, on one hand, it's very, very hard to get a theater, as I'm sure you've, I'm sure everyone on your podcast at some point has talked about that. I mean, it's a very difficult time to get a theater, which is exciting. It means there's a lot of shows wanting to be on Broadway. Um, but uh, but to some extent, you also have to think about seasons, you know. And and one of the reasons why um, you know we didn't go in the fall, like right after we had a wonderful sold out run at A R T, um, to to be honest, like we weren't we weren't getting the offers of the the theater that we wanted. You know, we wanted to be in a size. Roughly twelve hundred, which is exactly where we are right now. Um, so there was that too. But we also were kind of looking at the landscape a little bit, and we said, would it hurt us to go in the next season from a Tony perspective? And that wasn't the reason we we waited, but it was one of them. We thought about that, you know. So e- I would say, even way back then, even before we had a theater, it was at least coming into our conversation, you know, to be responsible. And we ultimately decided, like, you don't pick a theater based on what the Tony landscape, potential Tony landscape looks like. That's both silly and arrogant. But it would be irresponsible as a producer not to at least have that be one factor of your conversation. Um, so so really, it goes all the way back then. At, talking more specifically now that the show is open and it, at this exact moment in time, we are having real like, okay, now we need to think about Tony campaign. Like that's happening literally right now. Um, so I would say that's, you know, January, like really, you know, we got through the the holidays and we opened the show on December 5th. And, you know, as soon as we got back, you know, one of our first uh, agenda items on our, our catch-up calls were, you know, we need to start thinking about our Tony campaign.
2: And were you involved um, in Grammy campaigns? Were you in the music industry was, at all? I was, certainly. Yeah. So is there an element of trying to grab a Grammy that you haven't seen Broadway do that you think we might should we lobby more for this stuff? We are now more than God when I started yeah. in this business. We never had Tony campaign. Sure, yeah. But what's something we can learn from the music industry? Whether it's frankly, it we'll broaden it because I don't want you to give away yeah, your secrets. No, to everybody, no, that's fine. Uh, but what's something about marketing music that
0: we can learn from in the theater business? Um. Wow, that's a really good question. I mean. To me, the marketing of music is really, it's a little, almost by, by that definition, when you say marketing music, that's a pretty broad thing to say, you know, as opposed to saying like, I am marketing this show, right? Like Beyonce doesn't market, you don't think of like, how are we gonna market that one concert at Madison Square Garden? You know, it's like, how do we market her as an entity and her music, right? And so, so I think that even that kind of mindset it is worth applying to Broadway. Like, don't think of this as just a show. Think of this as a piece of art. And how do you market that in every way possible? Not to sell tickets, to generate conversation, to generate the interest of other artists. Like, don't think of it as just one show in one venue where you got to sell x number of, of tickets think about that as well you have to you got to do that you got to fill the fill the 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 theater just to return the money to your investors and start making a profit that's that's broadway business 101 um, but think of it broadly as the, as the art i mean that's how record labels thought about their artists you know they uh, a record label would sign an artist to a number of albums you know they would have an artist signed for 5 albums 10 albums so they would also think about developing careers and that's you know right there a very big difference with Broadway. You know you you, you don't su- you don't put together a creative team, and then say like we're going to do five things together. The first is jagged, and we're going to you know I love I would go walk through fire with this creative team, and I I hope to work with all of them again. But it's not as though we've signed a deal where. They're going to do my next four projects, you know. But that would be the the sort of analogy in, in the music industry. But but what that creates in the music industry is those companies think about long, when when they're doing their jobs right. The, the the more successful ones think about development. They think of long term perspective. They think of what what will this one marketing effort how how will it affect the immediate, but also how will it affect the long term. And I think uh, I think very often we don't have that longer term perspective in the theater business, um, the way the music industry does.
2: So true. We're mostly just scrambling, trying to get to next week,
0: frankly, with all of our shows and rather you have than to. thinking long term. You, you have to do that too. I'm certainly not suggesting you, you have to do that in theater as well. Um, or you'll get kicked out of your theater. You know, like we know as we, that we've seen yes, that story, right? They'll exercise the stop clause. So
2: you know, you mentioned your next four projects. What are what is next for you in your strange strange concoction of yeah, how you put these things it's a together? Yeah,
0: super super exciting time for me. Um, you know, as is probably evident from this conversation, I you know I came out of the music industry. I love music. It's my first love. And, um, and I have a lot of contacts in that world, so probably unsurprisingly, um, I've been getting a ton of phone calls, incoming opportunities from musicians, artists, their managers, their reps, but me- very often it's the musicians themselves um, wanting to play in this space. And, and a- as they are observing that really interesting work is being done in this space um you know it's not just i mean there are some great bios if they're I mean, it's not what i do but there are some very good ones very successful ones but there's also very interesting you know hamilton has proved that that it can do what it does on broadway hedwig came to broadway in a in a way that like when you know i was a gigantic fan of hedwig at the jane street theater when it ran off broadway back then you couldn't imagine it playing on broadway now it you know wins tonys on broadway you know broadway has proven itself as a place where you know anything Goes in the sense of that you you can you can try to take anything to Broadway. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work, but like just just by nature of what the show is, isn't there isn't like well that doesn't sound like a Broadway show. It's like if you develop it in a certain way, it might have a chance, right? It doesn't. That's not to say it's going to work, um, but my point there is artists, musical artists see that, and artists that may 10 years ago thought like I'm not a Broadway guy, I'm not or gal, I'm you know that's cheesy jazz hands, it's not my thing, I don't write show tunes, are now thinking like huh maybe there's something to do there. And so I'm getting a lot of those phone calls from artists across the musical spectrum in terms of of genre, um and also across like estates, you know, from artists that have either passed away or or bands that have broken up, um as well as from, you know, currently uh existing artists and bands who are com- currently composing, wanting to explore this this path of doing, you know, something. And and I should should also take a step back and not say necessarily Broadway, but musical theater on stage. The way I describe it is live narrative entertainment. So what I do is I create live narrative entertainment based on high-profile music IP. Um, so, you know, Broadway is a sweet spot, but it might not just be Broadway. It might be a touring production to tour amphitheaters. Um, it might be something that belongs to in the UK and has a very UK sensibility. Like who knows? You know, I I certainly don't want to say that every project is bound for Broadway, but live narrative entertainment. Um, So story, that's why I say include narrative in that. Um, So not just cool concert experiences, but something story oriented based on high profile music IP. So what that means is what I do is I work with well-known artists or composers or their estates. Love new composers, love seeing that kind of work. It's not what I do. It's not what I do as a producer. Um, so in that little spiel, live narrative entertainment based on high-profile music IP, I have um, embarrassment of riches of, of opportunities that I'm discussing. I can't drop any names just yet, but, but, uh, but one of two things is going to happen uh, over the course of 2020 from, from me and my company. The first is that you'll hear me announce three or four of these projects uh, that, will, um, that will be, you know, as I said, a live narrative entertainment project based on, on an artist or a composer that you will have heard of. Or the, the second thing that I'm gearing up to do is um, I'm actually in the process of putting investment materials together and, and raising a little bit of money um, to expand my company. Uh, literally, I'm very proud of the fact that we're lean and mean. We, we is me and my assistant Lenora, you know, and I obviously have a number of partners on all the projects I work on, but my company is just just me and one other, and one assistant. So in, I'm entirely going to raise um, raise some money. Don't know what that amount is just yet. Um, you know, I'm putting the financial model together with a friend of mine who works in investment banking, and uh, I believe it's going to be somewhere in the five to ten million range um, entirely to hire new staff hire some, some other producers, some more support staff, a COO, biz dev type person, and um, and ha- also have some money left over to chase music rights and because those are expensive. Um, and under that scenario, in which I raise a little bit of cash, um, then I'm announcing eight to 10 projects by the end of the year, eight to 12 projects. And I should say, you know, projects that will be staggered out, you know, not just because every cool artist... Crosses my desk. Does it mean that they are right for the musical theater format? Not everyone is right for it. Um, not every artist or album has a has a story built in. And I said I, I'm big on story, um, but uh, but you'll definitely be hearing you know either four projects or you're going to be hearing you know around ten projects. Uh, announced in the near future, well, no, I shouldn't say near future, over the course of the next year. Well, I just love that you found this
2: little niche, and you've just focused so intently on it, so smart. And two, I love also that you're applying this business model of raising money for your company, which is what most companies do in the world, and Broadway producers, once again, just like we don't have graphic novels. uh, (laughs) Right, right.
0: Also, do not do. Well, you know, I'm, 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 you know, ne- end of January, January 26th, I'll, my company turns 21 years old. And, uh, and, you know, up until now, we've not raised any money. Like it's not been the path that I've chosen to take, but, but now, now it's time. And, um, you know that scenario under which i'm only doing only you know but i'm doing you know 3 or 4 of these projects that would be fine from a financial standpoint in the sense that like i'm doing great i i love what i do you know i don't i'm not uh, i don't need quote unquote need to do that from a financial sense but what what that would result in is a scenario where i'm telling an amazing artist sorry can't work with you because i don't have any bandwidth and that would be a shame um you know, and it's funny, you said, like I found this this real niche, and I'm laser focused on it, and I have. and uh, and that would would also be you know an answer to a question you asked earlier. What's something you learned in business school? It's like, you know, identify a niche where there you have a competitive advantage and uh, and you know, and really laser focus on that. But t- to be totally honest, like I, I you know, I can't claim that I set out to do that. Really, I've, I found myself in that niche because I followed my passions. You know, and then all of a sudden I found myself here. Like my passions are unique. They're unique to me. And my path has just been unique because that's that's the way life took me, that I, you know, had a lot of experience in the music industry and then a lot of experience in theater. And here I am where those two industries are converging. Um, so on, on one hand, I like to think that that I am a some of my – my parts and yes, I'm a business student and I think along, you know, in certain ways. Um, but also like, you know, I don't wanna pretend to be that smart. Like it's also like, <laughs> life brought me where it brought me just by following my passions, well, you know. Everyone on Broadway
2: is glad it brought you here for sure. So this is my last question, which is my genie question. Uh-oh. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and wants to grant you one wish. As a thank you for bringing Alanis to Broadway and all these other artists, which are, I'm sure, going to be enormous, not only for this individual space, but just also marketing the theater in general. When people like Alanis Morissette come to Broadway, Broadway becomes very cool, which is just very good for the theater. So the genie wants to thank you for that and grant you this one wish. You're a real positive guy, and I love your optimism, and (laughs) I get the smile on your face. if, If everyone could see it right now, you just know this guy is doing what he was meant to do. Thank you. What's the one thing that drives you nuts about working on Broadway that frustrates you, that actually makes you bang the table, go, man, I wish this could be different and the
0: genie would wish it away? Yeah, I mean, honestly, not unlike that question you asked me earlier, I will will think about it and maybe I'll get back to you. But really, off the top of my head, there really isn't anything like that. There isn't anything that I bang my head on the desk about. You know, one of the things I'm really proud of is that, you know, I have an eight-year-old and I have an 11-year-old. And you know, one of the things that I'm proud that I model for them is that, like, every day that I come home, I'm I'm proud of what I do. I love what I do. Now, let me be very specific when I say that. Not every day is an easy day. Like, they also see Dad come home some nights and I'm tired, or I'm like, look obviously stressed, or I'm upset because something didn't, you know, some very specific thing, some negotiation or some. Whatever, some performance, something happened that didn't go the way I wanted it to go. So it's not as though I'm I'm always like a you know happy. But they know that like dad does what he loves, and and there's nothing I regret or hate about what I do. There really isn't, um, you know. So so if it's a professional wish that the genie could grant it would just be that i could do that option too like the genie grants me success with my uh my 5 to 10 million fundraise for tg live and and that i get to do those those 10 plus projects instead of four like that would be that's my dream you know and and you know, uh, again, don't want to sound arrogant, but I don't think I'm going to need the genie for that. I think I'm going to pull that off on my own. Yeah, I'd certainly bet on you based on everything you've done so far.
2: uh, I think you're going to do just fine with that and everything else you're doing. So thank you for being here today. Uh, Thank you all of you for listening out there. We will see you next time on the Producers Perspective podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks again to Vivek for sitting down with us today. Listen, if you're excited about our new season on the Producer's Perspective podcast, please do us a favor, review us on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you are listening to us on. It just helps other theater makers and theater fans like you enjoy these conversations and find these conversations and just helps get the word out about theater all over the world. And if you're looking for more theater podcasts, check out Broadway Podcast Network. This thing has so many podcasts on it now, it's amazing. It's a brand new community and platform for Broadway-themed podcasts and other online content, and there's some really cool people on there. Carrie Butler's on there, all sorts of great, amazing folks that you can listen to. To find more about me and learn about my projects and everything I'm doing, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at Ken Davenport b or check out my blog at theproducersperspective.com. And now this week's hashtag songwriter of the week is Drew Gasparini. Check out his song, If I Had You, from his hit album, I Could Use a Drink. There is a great title for an album. For more information, check out DrewGasparini.com or at Drew Gasparini on Instagram and Twitter. And we will see you next week with a brand new episode of the Producers Perspective podcast.